0: This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brennan. Today, we dive into the nightmare that is the growing tide of fascism worldwide, and look at the prospects and perils this nightmare holds for public education.
1: I think that these are very dark times all over the world. I I think the rise of fascism is emerging once again. I I, I think there are signs that people are mobilizing. I think that the contradictions are becoming so great that people all of a sudden who wouldn't be political are becoming more political and are are getting actively involved. I think that young people represent a paradigm shift for the most part from what we've seen in the past in that they're more tolerant, they're more savvy technologically, they're more politically
0: astute. My guest. Is the renowned scholar Henry Giroud. He has a new book entitled "American Nightmare: Facing the Challenge of Fascism," which will be published in May.
1: Yeah, we, we, we've heard this language before, and we've heard we heard it in the 1930s, and we heard it in, in the 1940s, and we heard it later in the 1970s in Latin America. I mean, this is a language that suggests that uh, the enemy of politics is democracy, and I think that Trump embodies that language and is basically at work again in promoting it.
0: Henry Giroux is the McMaster University Professor for Scholarship in the Public Interest and the Paolo Freire Distinguished Scholar in Critical Pedagogy. He has written over 60 books and is considered one of the top educational thinkers today. Henry Giroux, welcome to Fresh Ed.
1: Thanks, Will. Wonderful to be on.
0: So you've written a, a new book called American Nightmare Facing the Challenge of Fascism, um, before getting into that book and, and, and America and what's going on currently in America uh, vis-a-vis public education, um, I just want to ask you, what went through your mind uh, in November 2016 when you realized that Donald Trump won the presidency?
1: Well, I, I, I think that went through my mind was that uh, there's been a long series of assaults on American democracy in the United States, dating back especially to the 1970s when the social contract was under siege and was appearing to collapse, and a discourse of demonization, racism, and Islamophobia, and uh, and objectification, and commodification, and privatization seemed to take over the country. Uh, I thought that uh, Trump was the endpoint of this. He's sort of the Frankenstein monster that was sort of let out of the room. And I thought it was an incredible tragedy for democracy. And I thought that the, uh, unlike some other, uh, unlike some other leftists, I thought that the consequences would be, uh, would be drastic once he assumed office. And I think in many ways I've, that's proven to be right.
0: In what ways has it proven to be right over the last year?
1: Well, I, I think all you have to do is look at the policies that he's attempted to implement and the language that he's used to define his mode of governance. I mean, this is a guy who basically has, has embraced uh, neo-Nazis. Uh, ultra-nationalism. He's a a serial liar. He's uh, he's, uh, uh, obviously has done everything he can to promote an anti-immigration logic. He's threatened to expel uh, a whole range of young people, 800,000 young people called dreamers from the United States. He's lowered taxes for the ultra-rich to the point where that will take an enormous toll on public services and public goods. He's uh, he's put into he's put into place a series of people who are basically either inept or uh, uh, utterly anti-democratic to run institutions such as the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, or a whole range of other institutions in which they're diametrically opposed to the interests that those institutions represent, because they're institutions that suggest that government has a responsibility to basically work for the people. They don't believe that. They believe that government should only uh, basically serve the financial elite and the financial and economic interest, and that freedom is basically a, a, about deregulating business and allowing the corporate elite to run wild. So, I, I mean, that's just a series, among other things, of, of things that he's done. Um, but I, I think that, uh, you know, he, he's, he's, he's put into place – a notion of governance that suggests that the United States is no longer a democracy, that we're on the road to a kind of neo-fascism dressed up in the American flag, and it's very frightening.
0: And so this is this this fascism that you talk about in your new book?
1: This is the fascism that I talk about. I mean, whether we're talking about the ultra-nationalism that he promotes, whether we're talking about the racism, the xenophobia, whether we're talking about the logic of disposability, the racial cleansing, that is behind many of his policies, the embrace of a corporate elite that replaces the political state with a corporate state. I mean, all of these things have echoes of uh, you know this glorification of national greatness, uh, this the, the claim that he's the only one who can save America. You know, we we we've heard this language before, and we've heard we heard it in the 1930s, and we heard it in in the 1940s, and we heard it later in the 1970s in Latin America. I mean, this is a language that suggests that uh, the enemy of, of, of politics is democracy. And I think that Trump embodies that language and is basically at work again in promoting it.
0: And do you see some of what Trump embodies being found in other parts in the world? I mean, just recently, Xi Jinping has, it looks like he's going to be in power indefinitely in China and Duterte in the Philippines. And I just read an article about um, a new ultra-right party in Italy that is glorifying Mussolini. Um, so, I mean, is this fascist tendency, this ultra-right pro-national tendency being you know, found worldwide? And if so, what's, what's causing it? Why do we see this resurgence of right-wing ultra-nationalist parties emerging worldwide?
1: I mean, I think there are a couple of things that work. I, I think that, first of all, you know, the, what we're seeing is the emergence of what is called illiberal democracy, the term coined, of course, in, in Hungary. Uh, and, and, I, and I think that, in many ways, Trump is ennobling this because he's aligned himself and actually has celebrated many of these fascists uh, in, in ways to suggest that this kind of politics in the 21st century is utterly acceptable. So I think, in, in some ways, the most powerful country in the world has sort of, in many ways, reached out and begun to legitimate an anti-immigration and an Islamophobic, uh, a, a racist kind of discourse that is linked to questions of racial purity and social cle- and, and, and uh, racial cleansing. Uh, that has that has opened up uh, the possibility for many of these countries to basically embrace this logic. And I think there are other issues. I mean, each country has its own issue, but I think the inability of these countries to deal with questions of, 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 of compassion and justice. These are countries that in many ways have been governed by a neoliberal logic that really has no respect whatsoever for notions of community, no respect whatsoever for notions of com- compassion, no respect whatsoever for what it means to embrace in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a kind of loving way the possibility of the other. I mean, this is a logic that elevates self-interest, nationalism, violence and the spectacle of consumption to the highest levels of of acceptance. And I think that what flows out of this in the face of particular kinds of crises that serve as a thread running through all of these countries is a basic fear of of, uh, what we might call the other, the stranger. Couple that with the fact that you have a global capitalism at work that in many ways has taken power away from these countries so that the only thing that they have left is an appeal to cultural sovereignty. It's an appeal to cultural nationalism. I mean, because basically, you have a ruling elite now that is global. You know, it's it's not it's not rooted in nation states. It floats. Politics is based in nation states. And power is global. So you have a completely uh, an enormously uh, uh, paradigm change in the redefinition of politics itself. And I think that one of the things that happens when you see this is that these states, as the social state collapses, as social goods and social provisions dry up, you have the rise of the punishing state. Because the only thing left for these states to really be able to do is is basically to uh, criminalize uh, social problems and and, uh, do what they can to basically become repressive states. Generally, they can exercise power. Generally, they can survive. And so I think all of these threads are really common to many of these states, many of these countries
0: so you you call Trump the endpoint in a way in this uh, in this nightmare that is American fascism um and of course, it has these roots in racism and neoliberalism. It would make sense that the roots here also go through the Democratic party that this is not simply um a republican issue in in the american context would would you agree with that?
1: yes, I do i, I do i I think there are two issues to really understand here I think that Both parties are are, are basically wedded to the financial elite, as we well know. I mean, both parties are funded by the financial elite. On one level, you've got a Democratic Party that takes on a sort of liberal discourse, but never challenges in any fundamental way the massive inequality or the financialization of the economy or the rule by bankers and hedge fund managers. They don't challenge that. They're in bed with that stuff. On the other hand, you have a Republican Party that now is filled with people who also are wedded. the financial elite, but this is a party that's been taken over by extremists. They're they're not just wedded to the financial elite, they're wedded to something more than that. They're wedded to a a kind of ultra-nationalism, a sort of notion that white Christianity is the official religion of, of of the United States. They're wedded to the notion of racial cleansing. They basically have accelerated all of the great sort of tragedies and crimes of the past in ways in which they're no longer coded, they've given them a new visibility. So they're not apologetic about their racism, they're not apologetic about their Islamophobia, they're not apologetic about attacking young people, they're not ap- apologetic about making short-term investments rather than long-term investments, and they're not they're not apologetic about in any way about destroying the welfare state and the social contract. But what both parties share is they really believe that capitalism and democracy are the same thing. And that capitalism and democracy is basically something run by uh, the financial elite, by the ruling elite, the 1%. Neither, neither, neither party has any trouble with that argument. There are factions within the Democratic Party that would challenge that. Bernie Sanders and so forth and so on. But they're marginal and they don't belong in the Democratic Party. The biggest mistake Sanders ever made was not starting a third party.
0: So in your opinion, how are capitalism and democracy separate?
1: They're separate in the sense that you can't have democracy when you have a system that promotes massive inequalities in wealth and power. It just doesn't work. I, I mean, it seems to me to have that degree of inequality and to support it in every way to allow all the commanding institutions of a country to be controlled by a handful of elites and corporations is the antithesis of democracy. Democracy means people have power. They have power to shape the conditions under which they live their lives. They have power, some, some power over the economy. They have access. They have social provisions. They have political rights, personal rights, social rights. Uh, that doesn't happen in, 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 in under capitalism. Capitalism is a ruthless system that basically is organized around the production of profit at the expense of human need. That's not a formula for democracy.
0: And so what would a social contract look like, in your opinion, within this? At the very
1: least, a social contract would guarantee political rights. It would, it, But it would guarantee political rights and individual rights, along with social rights, meaning that you would have economic rights. You would have a social wage. You know, you would limit, massively limit, massive degrees of inequality. It would mean that people would have access to higher education, to health care, all the things that become central to how we live out our sense of agency and make it possible would be part of the social contract and the public good uh, when you don't have that you don't have a democracy. And it seems to me the degree to which you want to call it socialism as the form of social democracy, or you want to call it socialism in ways that simply allow the most important structures, infrastructures, resources of a society to be governed by, uh, to, be, to be a government controlled uh, phenomena. That's a mix that we have to figure out. But I think the bottom line is you have to realize that In a democracy, the first question you have to raise is what does it mean to provide the conditions for people to have a sense of agency and not merely to be able to survive so that their capacities can be developed in a way in which they have access to do other things, simply than struggle to eat, simply than struggle in the midst of poverty, simply to struggle for meaningful work, simply to struggle to find a way to pay massive loans Uh, in in order to get a decent education, simply not to struggle to have decent health care. These are central questions that uh, are not just simply about power. They're about the capacity to live, to live with dignity.
0: And so let's shift to education here. Um, In your last book called The Public in Peril, you, you used a term, you said you wanted to see the political more pedagogical. What did you mean by this?
1: What I mean by that is that One of the things that has disturbed me and one of the things I've written about for many years, and I'm not the first, although I think probably I've developed it more repeatedly than most people, is that education is central to politics. I mean, you you can't talk about politics if you can't talk about consciousness, if you can't talk about changing the way people think, if you can't talk about engaging them in a dialogue or with a vocabulary in which they can invest themselves, identify with. And be able to recognize the conditions under which they find themselves, so that they can either they learn how to change those conditions or to understand what those conditions mean in terms of their own sense of oppression. And I and I think that all too often we equate democracy. I'm sorry. We we equate domination with simply institutions. We say you know the, the only way you can talk about power is to talk about economic structures. Well, I'm sorry. You, you know, as it, important as economics is and economic structures are. You also have to talk about what it means to create the conditions for people to, to be able to think, to be self-reflective, to be, to be able to identify with certain kinds of narratives, have information available in which they can become self-reflective individually and collectively. And I think, you know, uh, the two what I would call pedagogy, you know, the the ability to intervene in people's lives with vocabularies and social relationships and values, uh, moral and political scripts. in in, in which people can all of a sudden be moved by the power of persuasion and logic and reason and truth has to be central to any politics.
0: And so what's the role of schools, like the institutions run by the government, the the public schools in this pedagogical effort to make or make politics more pedagogical?
1: I, I think that schools are probably one of the few places left where, not controlled by corporations entirely, where actually... This, this kind of teaching can take place where people can have debates, where people can be exposed to positions that are historical, scientific, that, have, that offer up the possibility for engaging in modes and creating modes of civic literacy and social responsibility. I mean, schools basically at their best should be democratic public spheres. They should be actively involved in not only teaching young people about the great traditions whatever they might be, that offer the best in human human learning and what it means to be civilized uh, and, and from a whole range of traditions, but also what it means to take on a sense of social and, 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 and political and ethical responsibility so that one recognizes that one lives in a society with others and that one has to struggle over democracy, struggle over justice, to learn that no society is ever just enough And that's as central to learning as learning uh, whatever it is that's of value in in terms of the kinds of human resources that are out there and available to be appropriated, engaged and discussed.
0: Is it possible to to accomplish some of those things inside, say, charter schools in America?
1: Charter schools are are, are basically, they have a long tradition, particularly in the United States, of, of simply segregating students. And and at the same time, sort of, uh, you know, displacing with the possibility of unions, ruining unions, undermining unions, and uh, operating off the assumption that schools are basically a private venture rather than a public good. So I I don't have a lot of faith in, in charter schools. I mean, is it possible that some charter schools, when they're pumped up with enormous amounts of money on the part of hedge fund managers simply so they can become a model for destroying public schools can work. Yeah, maybe. But all the research seems to suggest that, you know, at their best, they're no better, if not worse, than public schools. I I don't believe that uh, public schools should be privatized. I I think they're they're a public good. They're not a private right. And I think as soon as we start talking about schooling as a private right and we start talking about schools as for-profit institutions, we destroy their possibilities as democratic public spheres.
0: I'm not so hopeful that uh, Betsy DeVos would agree with you there.
1: Betsy DeVos is probably one of the most hated people in America because people realize what she's about. She's a billionaire who hates public schools and has claimed that her mission in life is to bring God's kingdom to students. She's a religious fanatic. I mean, she's an ideological fundamentalist and a religious fanatic. I mean, and now she's the head. She's the secretary of education in the United States. What does that say about education? What does that say about this administration? It says that it basically she schools. I mean, Donald Trump has made it clear he loves the uneducated. He said he said that many times. He's a guy who doesn't read books. He's basically he basically eats, uh, you know, McDonald's hamburgers and watches Fox News. I mean, this is not exactly a guy that's going to embrace any institution that offers the possibility of educating students or, or adults to think critically. He finds those institutions enormously dreadful and, and challenging. And and, and and actually, more than that, he, find, he views them as a pathology. That's why he invented the notion of fake news. And that's why he believes that, uh, that's why he's a serial liar and continues to believe that he can say anything because he believes that he doesn't have to be held accountable. In a democracy, people are held accountable. But he's not a guy who believes he should, he, that he should be held accountable. That's the mark of any fascist dictator.
0: So what is to be done here, right? I mean, so for, for people who agree with you, like myself, you know, what can we do to protect public education uh, as a democratic social contract or, or democratic social good?
1: I, I think some questions have to be raised that all of a sudden bring to the forefront what education really is about and why it's so vitally important. And I think that one of the questions has to be is what role does education play in a democracy? And the second question has to be, to what degree does democracy, can democ- does, how does the, a democracy function and, and continue to function in ways that make certain demands upon education? I mean, I, I think that what we have to recognize is that education is probably one of the most powerful educational forces in the world. Uh, and certainly in terms of formal in, in schooling, that, that offers the possibility for creating a formative culture that allows people to think critically and be informed. I mean, you know, Dewey, Arant, a whole range of philosophers, Castoriadis, have been telling us for years, and they're right. You can't have a democracy without informed citizens. And I think that when we realize how crucial, you know, higher education, public education is to creating the formative culture that makes a democracy possible, then we'll stop talking about it in terms of simply training workers. Education is not training. They're different things. And we've lost sight of that in the United States. I mean, the script has been flipped and all of a sudden education now is simply an adjunct of, of, of corporate life, of corporate demands, of corporate needs. And I think that in many ways, uh, what we see in Parkland and what we see among young people all over the country, whether we're talking about the you know uh, a whole range of movements, a Black Lives Matter movement, a whole range of movements. I mean, people are saying, hey, look, There's a certain violence that's going on in this country that in part is linked to education both within and outside of the schools that makes people vulnerable to systemic terror, to systemic violence, and it's got to stop. And it's got to stop because we have to restructure and rethink the relationship between democracy and capitalism and probably begin to say capitalism and democracy are not the same thing. The second thing is we've got to invert and fight some of the most pernicious and poisonous elements of neoliberalism. I mean, the most in the most poisonous, in my mind, is the one that suggests that the only responsibility that matters is individual responsibility. That that that's it. That you know you're responsible for everything that goes on in the world, and you have no right to believe that there are social problems out there over which you have individually have no control, uh, and that uh, you have to assume that burden. And by assuming that burden, you completely uh, dismantle the link or the ability to translate private issues into larger social considerations. That's depoliticizing. That means you become depoliticized. That means you become cynical. That means you blame yourself for all the problems in which you find yourself. And it means that basically you're out of the loop politically, that there's nothing that can be done except to basically become part of the opioid crisis, collapse into cynicism, or just retreat into the worst kinds of despair.
0: So would it be correct to say um, that you think the sort of civic courage that is needed is to repoliticize a lot of the spaces that have been depoliticized?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I think that what we need to do is that we need to talk about public spheres that engage and in, in, in raise the possibility of civic literacy and civic courage and social responsibility to the point where we can reclaim the language of democracy. We can once again talk about compassion. We can once again talk about uh, social relationships that are not simply based on on, on an exchange relations, commodified relations. We can talk about the notion of community and what it means. We can assume that dependency is not a pathology, that community is not something that you hate, and that shared responsibilities are a lot more important than shared fears.
0: Are there any examples of such systems, or even just schools, where 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 this happens, where, where this politicization happens?
1: I mean, there 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 are schools all over the country in the United States that basically are on the side of this kind of these kinds of progressive ideas. I mean, and there are there are countries that are on the side of these progressive, the social democratic countries. What are you talking about? Finland or Sweden or Germany? I mean, these are places where higher education is free, public education is free. I mean, these are places, even in Canada, I mean, in not the most pronounced social democracy in the world, but look, I get sick. I don't pay anything. You know, I, I just walk into a hospital. Or, you know, I, I make appointments with doctors. I get free medical care. I mean, I'm you know, in the United States, half the half the debts that people have, uh, bankruptcies are due to health uh, ex- care expenses. So, I mean, there, there are examples all over the world of countries that have basically Im- put into place social provisions and social safety nets that allow people to live with a certain degree of dignity. And and I I think we need to learn from them. And I think we need to look very carefully at at what that means in terms of what it means to invest in the future of young people rather than disinvest in, in, in young people and operate off the assumption that uh, making money is far more important than, for instance, the lives of young people. For instance, the gun, the gun manufacturers, uh, you know, many of the gun rights people, they truly believe that you know that we live in a country where killing children is less important, uh, actually, than than uh, basically making money off the selling of guns.
0: Are you hopeful that America will get out of this nightmare? Will return to a social democratic society? where the public good of education exists?
1: Intellectually, I'm pessimistic. Uh, In in, in terms of the future, I'm hopeful. I mean, I I think that these are very dark times. All over the world, I I think the rise of fascism is emerging once again. I I, I think there are signs that people are mobilizing. I think that the contradictions are becoming so great that people all of a sudden who wouldn't be political are becoming more political and are are getting actively involved. I think that young people represent a paradigm shift for the most part uh, from what we've seen in the past in that they're more tolerant, they're more savvy technologically, they're more politically astute. Uh, and I want to hope that that young people all of a sudden will recognize that being written out of the future and being written out of the script of democracy is enough of a challenge to be faced, that they will not only create moments and demonstrations, but actually create movements that will be broad-based enough to be able to really challenge the power structures that are in place in many of these countries today including the united states
0: well henry giroux thank you so much for joining fresh Ed, and thank you so much for all the writing you've done over the years i i'm a huge fan well I'm, I'm delighted to be on and thank you so much for having me henry giroux is a professor at mcmaster university his latest book american nightmare will be published in may by City Lights Publishers. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. Aggie Hu is FreshEd's social media coordinator, and original music for FreshEd was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.